Hey, podcast listeners, this is Mark Earhart. The first week of October is like a science lover's world series. Each year, the spotlight falls on high-impact science, day after day, when a series of Nobel Prizes and other prestigious awards are announced all in one week. This has been an especially exciting week for us here in the University of Texas at Austin's College of Natural Sciences. For the second year in a row, one of our alumni nabbed the Nobel Prize for Physiology or Medicine. What's more, the prizes given in the categories of physics and chemistry this year were also celebrated by scientists on campus, because the breakthroughs getting attention have implications for research happening right here. And finally, on Thursday, another big announcement came. The MacArthur Foundation announced it had awarded UT Austin chemist Livia Eberlin a MacArthur Fellowship, or what some people call a Genius Award. Today on Point of Discovery, we're going to do something completely different. We're bundling some past stories related to the science that's been in the news this week for one mega recap episode. Play ball! First up, on Monday, our alum James Allison won one of the 2018 Nobel Prizes for Physiology or Medicine for his work on cancer immunotherapy. You're listening to the band of Texas legend Willie Nelson, accompanied on harmonica by a special guest, James Allison a University of Texas at Austin alumnus. It was two years ago at a roadhouse near Houston. He said it was one of the top five moments of his life. Allison has a day job, too, as a researcher at MD Anderson Cancer Center. In fact, he is arguably one of the most influential cancer researchers of our time. This is Point of Discovery, And the discovery we're talking about today is already saving lives. Forty years ago, when Allison had just gotten his Ph.D. in biochemistry, he was intrigued by this far-out idea that was floating around about a new way to treat cancer. The idea, dubbed cancer immunotherapy, was to train the body's immune system to attack cancer cells, the same way this system already goes after bacteria and viruses. People would say, you can't treat cancer without treating the cancer cells. That's dumb. You know, our immunotherapy will never work, never has, never will, you know. In the 70s and 80s, cancer immunotherapy was definitely a fringe idea. Prominent scientists proclaimed that because cancer cells still looked in many ways like healthy cells, the immune system would never recognize them as dangerous. For those who persisted, there were high-profile setbacks. Two drugs hailed as cancer cures, called interferon and interleukin-2, looked really good in the lab, but ultimately flopped. Young scientists were steered towards safer projects. But James Allison has never been one to let other people's biases get in his way. When he was a biochemistry student in Austin, scientists had recently discovered the T-cell. These are the cells in your bloodstream that act like armed sentries. 
They identify and wipe out foreign invaders, meaning bacteria and viruses. Anyway, I was just I was just fascinated by the whole idea. You got this cell, the whole job is to just patrol and look for stuff and deal with it without hurting you. <laughs> but no one really knew how T cells worked. Over the next couple of decades, he and others made key discoveries about T cells that would ultimately make the dream of cancer immunotherapy a real possibility. One of Allison's most important and controversial insights was that a receptor in T-cells called CTLA-4 acts as a kind of break to stop it from attacking things. Other researchers thought CTLA-4 did the exact opposite, acting instead like a gas pedal. So that led to a lot of controversy. And uh, two or three years, you know, again, get these little meetings, everybody yelling, it is, it's not, it is, it's not. Another research team had already discovered one gas pedal for T-cells, called CD28. That same team argued that CTLA-4 was like a second gas pedal. But Allison's experiments suggested otherwise. And, uh, you know, in fact, our first paper, we said CTLA-4 opposes CD28 co-stimulation. And the, the guy that had made the first discovery saying it was another co-stimulatory molecule wrote an editorial about it with our same title, except he had a string of question marks after it. <laughs> and he said, we were just wrong. You know. When the dust finally settled, years later, it was clear that Allison and his team were right. CTLA-4 was a breaking mechanism for T-cells, which made some sense. If you have these armed sentries circulating around the body and they just keep killing, they might accidentally start killing healthy cells. The body needs a way to turn them off. Allison reasoned that one of the ways that cancer avoids being wiped out by your immune system is by hijacking the T-cell's built-in brakes to shut it down. It was a light bulb moment. Maybe, he thought, you could put a brick under the brake pedal and keep T-cells from shutting down. If he was right, it would unleash the full power of the immune system to attack cancer. And so I had a simple idea. Well, let's just disable the brakes and see what happens. I'll just keep them going. And so sure enough, we injected this antibody to CTLA-4, which blocks the brakes. And we saw tumors just melt away. Tumors just don't melt when you inject something into mice. You know, and, and, it, and in every strain of mouse that we tried, and in almost every tumor that we did, either by itself or in combination with radiation or something, we found almost no tumors we couldn't cure in mice. This particular flavor of cancer immunotherapy is called checkpoint blockade. It's basically blocking the checkpoint, or break, that prevents T-cells from attacking cancer cells. It worked so well in mice, Allison partnered with a drug company to test the drug in people with metastatic skin cancer, or melanoma. Well, I know one woman who was in the phase one trial, the very first trial uh, of CTLA-4, or ipilimumab was the, was the drug name, um, she had metastatic melanoma and failed every therapy. They said she was hospice-bound, you know, and her, her doctor, I know, supposedly went in and said, you know, all we've got left is this one thing. And uh, no, it's never been in people before. You know, we don't know. You know, it might be dangerous, might be whatever. She said, I'll do anything. I just want to live two months to see my son graduate from high school. Up to this point, there had been no real effective treatment for metastatic skin cancer the average life expectancy following diagnosis was 11 months. 
But after one treatment with Allison's new drug, this patient's tumors vanished. So I met her 10 years later when I visited UCLA, which is where she was treated. So one injection, 10 years later, she was fine. And I just checked up a few weeks ago. Now she's almost 18 years out. She's fine. Since it went on the market in 2011, thousands of skin cancer patients have taken ipilimumab, and more than one in five have had a complete remission. There was no precedent for metastatic melanoma patients surviving for more than 10 years after treatment, but that was now happening with Allison's drug. One patient eventually realized that her own doctor was having trouble processing the extent of her recovery. Every year then she was just scared and afraid. And the doctor said, don't have kids. And finally, she just said, to hell with all that. I'm cured, and I'm going to live my life normally. Um, started running again, had a couple of kids. Happy now. You know, but she said it just took that saying, I'm cured, damn it. Allison was giving a talk once, and a cancer surgeon came up to him afterwards and said, you can't tell a patient they're cured if they still have a spot on their CT scan. And I said, well, let me just tell you something. After three years, virtually nobody dies. So at some point, you got to tell people they don't have to worry about it anymore just so they can have peace of mind and get on with their lives. I said, just remember, doctor, you're treating the patient, not the damn CAT scan. And so the definition of cure, of course, is there's not a single cancer cell left in their body. And who can, you know, we don't know that. I mean, no, but if after 10 years, you're fine, why worry about it anymore? Today, cancer immunotherapy is branching into treatments for other cancers. Several effective drugs are on the market, and many more are in clinical trials. As chair of immunology at MD Anderson, Allison is currently involved in clinical trials that combine his anti-cancer drug with another one that helps T-cells go after cancer. Metastatic melanoma patients started receiving this combined therapy three years ago, and so far, three out of five are still alive. That's a 60% survival rate for a disease that was once a death sentence. Allison predicts that most of the people who have responded to the combined treatment will continue to live long, healthy lives. So there are many people alive today that would not be alive were were not for your work. Yeah, that's a big bonus. You know, I was doing basic science to do basic science, you know, but... I'm, uh, you know, had, had the good opportunity to see it develop into something that actually does people good. That's gratifying. Here's James Allison playing harmonica with his band The Checkpoints, which is made up entirely of immunologists. If you'd like to hear more, we've embedded a couple of clips on our website at pointofdiscovery.org. While you're there, take our survey and let us know your thoughts about this podcast. Point of Discovery is a production of the University of Texas at Austin's College of Natural Sciences. Our senior editor is Christine Sinatra. I'm your host and producer, Mark Earhart. Thanks for listening.
So that's story number one. Before we begin story number two, a little context is helpful. Scientific Nobel Prizes were also given out on Tuesday and on Wednesday. This time, the excitement was not because individuals with UT ties received the prizes. Instead, the discoveries provide a chance to talk about some pretty amazing research happening right here at UT Austin. For example, Tuesday's Physics Nobel celebrated chirped pulse amplification. It's a laser technique that creates ultra-short pulses of high-intensity light. It just so happens that this technology is the foundation for one of the world's most powerful lasers, the Texas Petawatt Laser, located on the main campus of UT Austin. When Wednesday rolled around, the Nobel Prize in Chemistry was awarded to scientists who helped develop a group of laboratory methods called Directed Evolution. These tools can be used for all sorts of things, including making more environmentally friendly chemicals or more effective drugs. And that brings us to our second story. While UT scientists did not develop the original tools that sped up evolution, they have been instrumental in developing their own directed evolution tools. In one instance, this effort enabled a team to create the world's first effective treatment for inhalation anthrax. The team included George Giorgio, Brent Iverson, and Jennifer Maynard. And in our next story, you'll hear from members of the team. Their methods were similar to those developed by the winners of the 2018 Nobel Prizes in Chemistry. It taught the country that death could come in the mail and you don't even see it coming. This is Point of Discovery. In 2001, just a month after the terrorist attacks of September 11th, mysterious envelopes with a strange white powder began appearing in the mailboxes of U.S. senators and journalists. People who had handled the envelopes got very sick. Eventually, five died. Brent Iverson is a chemistry professor and dean of undergraduate studies at the University of Texas at Austin. I don't know anybody who wasn't at that time kind of looking at their letters and making sure there wasn't any white powder in them because that was, that was supposed to be the sign. The powder turned out to be a weaponized form of anthrax spores. The last death in the case came in November 2001. The FBI concluded that all the letters were sent by one lone government scientist, but some critics still continue to believe it was a larger conspiracy. Makers of biological weapons choose anthrax for a couple of reasons. First of all, it's easy to weaponize. How easy is it? Using standard laboratory techniques for growing cells and isolating spores, you can make a very large lethal batch, and it is extraordinarily lethal. A few 55-gallon drums of weaponized anthrax spores could kill as many people as a nuclear warhead. At the time of the anthrax letter scare, there was no effective late-stage treatment. If caught early, antibiotics could work, but not later during an infection. That's why five victims died in the hospital. Just this past spring, the U.S. Food and Drug Administration approved a new and effective treatment for late-stage inhalation anthrax, 
a solution that was engineered by Iverson and other scientists at the University of Texas at Austin. To get a drug that worked, all sorts of problems had to be solved. But there were really three big ones. The first problem was to find something that sticks to the anthrax toxin and keeps it from damaging body cells. You see, during an infection, the anthrax bacteria flood a victim's body with toxins, much like the venom from a poisonous snake. The toxins infect immune cells and cause them to attack healthy body cells. And just like a snake, it's not the snake itself, or in this case the bacteria, that kills you. It's the toxins. If you get bitten by a poisonous snake and you do nothing to treat the venom, you can kill that snake and it's not going to help you. Um, It's the venom that's doing the damage. It was the U.S. military that first tackled this problem. Scientists at a military institute that was focused on developing countermeasures for biological weapons, called U.S. AMRID, or the U.S. Army Medical Research Institute of Infectious Diseases, infected mice with anthrax. The mice produced antibodies, natural defense molecules that stick to foreign substances like toxins. Then the scientists harvested those antibodies to use as a treatment for anthrax. But even the best mouse antibodies didn't actually work very well. The problem was these antibodies were showing effectiveness temporarily, but animals who were treated with anthrax would show a delayed time to death, but they would still die with the best antibodies that U.S. AMR could develop. So this was the second problem, to find a way to make these antibodies that were just okay stick even better to the toxins. Now it just so happens that researchers at the University of Texas at Austin were developing some remarkable new tools to make molecules like antibodies do a better job of sticking to their targets. We were contacted by folks from the Defense Department to see if maybe we could use these technologies we were developing to help in the fight against anthrax. Brent Iverson and his colleague George Giorgio were not focused on neutralizing bioweapons. They were learning how to take any kind of protein, maybe an antibody, maybe something else, and make it stick to things better, using an approach called directed evolution. What it comes down to is this idea that we can't design a better antibody. We don't understand them well enough, but we can take our cues from Mother Nature. They would basically create millions of slightly different versions of the same molecule, each one the result of a unique set of genetic mutations, and then select for the version that worked the best. Think of a photocopier. You make copies of copies of copies, and they all get just to be a little bit worse. And by the time you're done, you have a lot of randomness spread throughout your gene. And in that case, you then screen all of them, and you find out which changes happen to be better. At this point, another key player enters the story. My name is Jennifer Maynard. I am an associate professor of chemical engineering at the University of Texas at Austin. She's a professor now, but in the late 90s, she was a graduate student working for Iverson and Giorgio. She took the military's antibody, which you'll remember only delayed death. It didn't prevent it. And she applied the tools of directed evolution. After a few years of hard work, she had produced an antibody that stuck really well to toxins in a dish of animal tissue culture. But you never really know if it's going to work until you put it into an animal model. And that's because animals are so complex. Colleagues at a facility designed to handle biohazards in San Antonio first injected the new antibody into living rats and then injected the rats with anthrax toxin. 
And that's when we were really excited because we compared the original antibody to our improved antibodies, um, and we saw that our, the animals were now protected and, and saved. Their antibody actually stuck to anthrax toxins 20 times better than the original version developed by the military. Then, just a week or two later, the unthinkable happened. The Florida man has contracted a very rare and potentially deadly form of anthrax. Now to the home front and those concerns over anthrax. Anthrax, another infection. The U.S. House of Representatives is closing offices today. In just a week's time, we have had four confirmed cases of anthrax, all with media connections. It was incredibly exciting, um, and it's incredibly motivating, right? When you're in the lab and you're trying to get something, you're like, oh my gosh, this really matters. If we can get this to work, it really matters because there are people who are getting anthrax right now. Because of the letter scare, a small pharmaceutical company in New Jersey called Eleusis Therapeutics became very interested in the new antibody developed at the University of Texas at Austin. But there was still a third big challenge to make an effective drug for treating anthrax. Normally, drugs stay in the body for just a couple of weeks and slowly drain out. Eleusis figured out how to make the drug stay in circulation a lot longer and give it a better chance of finding the toxin and binding to it. So they have some really cool proprietary technology where they link the antibody to your red blood cells. So it just sort of hitchhikes on your red blood cells and ends up spending a lot longer in your body. Oh, wow. Yeah, exactly. It's very cool. Finally, this past spring, the FDA approved the drug Anthem as the first treatment for late-stage inhalation anthrax. It took decades, but now finally the good guys were one step ahead of would-be terrorists. How Anthem was developed is a tale that fits into a much larger story. That story is about the importance of basic science, letting curiosity drive the research, even though the chance of failure is high and the ultimate applications are hard to even predict. And the value of basic science is, is to try the really wacky things, put proteins on the surface of a bacterium, see if you can use something called fluorescence-activated cell sorting to isolate some bacteria away from other bacteria, do things that eh, may not have worked. But then, collectively, you can develop just enough that you can apply it to new situations when not only the country, but also an industry needs those things. They're there for them to use. Another thread in the same story has to do with funding. Support for research today is an investment in the future. Because doing research is a fundamental part of a university education, Jennifer Maynard not only got her PhD, but she was able to come back to the university as a professor and is now applying the same techniques to develop treatments for other diseases, such as whooping cough. Well, I think I was incredibly lucky because it was the perfect research project for me. It was absolutely perfect, and I got to learn so much in so many different areas, and it has really set the stage for the rest of my career. And now for our third story. Livia Eberlin invented the mass spec pin, which can rapidly detect cancer in patients during surgery. She has just received a MacArthur Genius Award. So let's revisit the story about her research. 
So for him, there was the concern that, you know, I don't want my brain to be obviously damaged, right? There's so much life still left to live when you're 22. This is Point of Discovery. I'm Mark Earhart. Today, I'm talking with Livia Eberlin, a chemist at the University of Texas at Austin, who has developed a stunning medical device. But we'll get to that in a moment. First, let's continue to listen to her story about her good friend, who five years ago, in his early 20s, was diagnosed with brain cancer. So uh, he told me that when he came out of surgery, his main concern is, you know, did the doctor get everything out? Because, of course, if the surgeon had left any cancer behind, there's a chance it would return. But her friend's other big worry was keeping as much healthy tissue as possible. This is the brain we're talking about. Eberlin realized that surgeons walk a tightrope every time they try to remove a tumor. They have to get all the cancer out, but they also have to preserve as much healthy tissue as possible. Um, Of course, surgeons are very well-trained, very experienced, but once you start removing the tumor and you get, you know, done with the the majority of it, right, with like the core of the tumor, you get into this tricky area where there's a mixture of tumor and normal cells. And that's where the hard decisions come in. And where do you stop cutting? She tells me that during surgery, there is a way that surgeons can get help in determining if what they're looking at is cancerous or not. They cut out a small piece of tissue and send it off to a lab down the hall. It gets frozen and sliced super thin. Then a pathologist looks at it under a microscope. But that process is slow. It takes about 30 minutes, maybe an hour, depending on the volume of surgeries that current day. And the process of freezing the cells changes their shape. So for some cancers, it can still be really tricky for a pathologist to make a call. For some cancers, the results can be wrong in as many as 10 to 20 percent of cases. Meanwhile, the patient is still lying there, opened up on the operating table. Waiting for the results increases the risk of infection and danger of too much anesthesia. Eberlin decided there must be a better way, and she was going to build it. Living cells, whether they are healthy or cancerous, produce small molecules called metabolites. So these are like things like amino acids, nucleotides, um, sugars, lipids, things that are small. These metabolites are involved in all the important processes of life, such as generating energy, growing, and reproducing. So with cancer, these processes are completely dysregulated. So these cells are growing very fast. They're um, invading tissues, so they have a completely different expression of these molecules within um, the cells. Each kind of cell has its own unique profile of metabolites. And among cancerous cells, a brain cancer cell has a different profile than, say, a lung cancer cell. Think of these metabolite profiles as fingerprints. Just like a detective at the scene of a crime, scientists can identify shady characters from just their fingerprints. And Eberlin set out to build an instrument that could detect them in a patient during surgery. That means surgeons would be able to tell which tissue is cancerous and which is healthy all in a matter of seconds. Eberlin 
Oberlin assembled a team of scientists and engineers from UT Austin that included Jialing Zhang in the College of Natural Sciences and Thomas Milner in the Cockrell School of Engineering to develop the three main subsystems. The first one is the actual handheld pan that's 3D printed, actually very simple um, plastic materials, things that you can use and dispose. A surgeon touches the pin directly to tissue in the patient. Tubes deliver a drop of water to the tip of the pin, and metabolites migrate from the tissue into the water. Then the water is drawn into an instrument that reads the molecular fingerprints, identifying thousands of types of molecules. And then we have the mass spectrometer that does most of the chemistry, right? It analyzes the molecules, it tells about the patterns. So, you know, we had a team working on the engineering part, a team working on the mass spectrometry, the chemistry part, and then there's all the computational software and statistical work. That third part, the software, is pretty cool. It uses methods from artificial intelligence research called machine learning. She says most of us have participated in machine learning without even knowing it. Facebook uses machine learning to recognize your face. So when if you, you know, are wasting a lot of your time and posting a lot of pictures on Facebook, you're training the computer to know this picture is me. As you upload more and more pictures, Facebook gets smarter, right? So it's recognizing the pattern of your face. So it's pattern recognition. You've told them so many times, look, this is me, this is me, this is me. When you get a picture that it's never seen, it's going to say, ha, you've trained me enough, so now I know that is you. That's the exact same technology that we use. To train their cancer-detecting software, Eberlin and researchers in her lab analyzed the molecular fingerprints of 253 tissue samples collected from normal and cancerous tissues of the breast, lung, thyroid, and ovary. The samples came from Baylor College of Medicine, UT's MD Anderson Cancer Center, and UT Austin's Dell Medical School. Now, when we bring a new sample that is never seen, it's been trained enough to know that that profile is of cancer or that profile is normal. It sounds like something you'd see on Star Trek and think, that's so cool. Maybe my grandchildren will live long enough to see something like that. But now Eberlin and her team have a working device called the Mass Spec Pin. In the current issue of the journal Science Translational Medicine, they describe how it works and how well it works. It works really well. Um, the system is fully automated, very easy to use. Anyone could use it. You just hold this pan into a tissue and use a foot pedal to activate it, and you get an automated response. So it's fully automatic, fully biocompatible, that's disposable. And in terms of the actual analytical performance, overall we have 96.4% accuracy um, for cancer detection. Remember, the existing technology surgeons use gets cancer detection wrong 10 to 20% of the time for some cancers. And it takes 30 minutes to learn anything. But the new mass spec pin? It returns results in about 10 seconds. Her tests so far have been on tumor-bearing mice and on tissue removed from humans. But Eberlin and her team plan to test it directly inside humans during surgery as soon as next year. She's confident that the speed and accuracy of the mass spec pin will mean that she's achieved what she set out to do. It will make cancer surgery safer. It will lead to more precise cancer removal so that healthy parts of the body stay intact. And it will reduce the chance of cancer recurrence. And that's really what 
I'm very passionate about like how can I make tools that are actually going to make an impact. Finally, it's the second year in a row that one of our alumni has won a Nobel Prize. Last year's Longhorn winner, Michael Young, received attention for his work on circadian rhythms. We ran a story about Dr. Young just last week, but in case you missed it, here is our final segment in the batch. Thanks for joining us. This is Point of Discovery. Last year, University of Texas at Austin alumnus Michael Young won the Nobel Prize for discovering the molecular mechanism behind circadian rhythms. Circadian clocks are critical for the health of all living things, acting as the internal timekeepers in plants and animals that help to synchronize functions like eating and sleeping with our planet's daily rhythm of light and dark. The roots of the discovery that won him science's biggest prize go back decades to when he was a graduate student at the University of Texas at Austin studying fruit flies. Back then, Young was exploring how many genes are in the fruit fly's genome. This was basic research. We were trying to get an idea of how, uh, how many genes the animal had. And, and it could have had 5,000 genes or it could have had 100,000 genes. He wasn't looking to cure a disease or anything. But then that's how science works. Beginning with a question that may strike many as inside baseball, researchers can arrive at a place that helps millions of people around the world, including those with sleep disorders. There aren't any quick wins in science, and so you you can't skip over the basic uh, findings. You can for a while, but then you'll just burn up everything that you've got uh, stored away in the cupboard, and then the cupboard's bare, and uh, you have to look somewhere else. Here is how Michael Young first started filling this particular cupboard. To begin to tackle the problem of how many genes were in this insect, he tried to count the genes in one small region of the genome. Data he believed he could use to extrapolate up to the whole genetic map for the fruit fly. A paper by scientists at the California Institute of Technology captured his attention at about the same time. It referred to mutations in fruit fly genes that could affect the insect's circadian clocks. Young's own experiments helped him locate precisely where those genes sat in the fruit fly genome. Miraculously, they fell right in that same small region of the genome that he was already studying. There were several very lucky events. One that I was at Texas happened to be in graduate school working with that lab on this region of the chromosome so that I would be... I would even be aware that I could have tools that would uh, help me locate and recover that gene. So it's a whole series of lucky events that you've never, never reproduced. It's like evolutionary biology, full of chance and accident. And uh, lightning struck for you. Lightning struck multiple times. (laughs) Yeah. the young scientist began exploring what controls sleep and wakefulness in fruit flies. Over time, he and others would eventually piece together how the fruit fly's circadian rhythm works. 
They found about a dozen genes that turn on and off throughout the 24-hour day-night cycle, some in response to light, creating the tick-tock of an internal clock. And these internal clocks weren't just in flies. They were in most animals. Our bodies, apparently so much more sophisticated than those of the lowly fruit fly, have essentially the same molecular clocks. So uh, in humans, they, these genes are active in our brain and control things like our sleep-wake cycles. But uh, they're also present um, in our liver and control the way uh, our metabolic uh, pathways run in a temporal fashion. The clocks were responsible for much more than sleep. They were involved in how the body processes food, regulates temperature, sets its heart rate, and other bodily functions. One of the biggest surprises was that the genes are activated throughout the body. We expected that gene to be active uh, in the head, in the brain, but we found that it was being made in lots of different tissues. And uh, we have these clocks in our skin. We have them in our uh, muscle cells. We have them in uh, uh, pancreas. Uh, just anywhere you look, you find uh, the tissues have these clocks. Many human disorders can be traced back to problems with our internal clocks. Research has found that conditions from weight gain to infectious disease resistance are affected when a person's circadian rhythms get jarred by things like jet lag, artificial light, and anything else that pulls our bodies out of sync with nature. So far, it seems like uh, uh, regulation by these uh, clocks in these different tissues touches on almost every major disease system uh, that we know about. For example, we know that there are a number of sleep disorders that have puzzled clinicians for a long time. And uh, one that we've paid a lot of attention to is uh, a dis disorder that's quite common. It affects about 5% of the population. It's called delayed sleep phase disorder. People with this disorder are true night owls. They stay up late and just can't wake up with the rest of the world. Young found that a specific genetic mutation is responsible for some of these cases. So we now have uh, hard and clear information about what the cause of a large component of a sleep disorder uh, is, and that has also given us uh, very specific ideas about how to treat that particular uh, sleep disorder. Young and other scientists have learned about how circadian clocks work, not only in disorders, but with healthy bodies adapting to modern life. Take, for example, a person who travels internationally. All of these little clocks become uh, quite confused, but in different ways. So as I go to Korea uh, over the weekend, one of the first things that will happen is that uh, little clocks in my brain will begin to realize I'm in Korea. I'm no longer in Texas. Uh, but it'll take much longer for my liver and my skin and my muscle cells to figure out that I'm in a new time zone. And for a while, they'll be ignoring what my brain is telling them I am doing, and we'll be listening to other, trying to get other signals on their own from the, uh, from the environment. So uh, we now understand jet lag as, as not just being still stuck back at home uh, on an old uh, schedule, but instead for a period of days, we have disagreement among all these clocks, so we are existing in multiple time zones simultaneously. Young is now a professor at Rockefeller University in New York. 
Early one morning in October 2017, his telephone rang with a call from Sweden, letting him know he was one of the winners of arguably the world's top prize for medicine and physiology. Joining the elite ranks of Nobel laureates has led Young to think again about the value of not only applied research, searching for specific medical breakthroughs, but basic research of the sort that he did with fruit flies starting over 40 years ago in Texas. I think there's a lot of pressure to uh, identify the potential outcomes, the potential applications of research, which is not a great idea. You, you just can't pick and choose an area and say this is going to lead us to the most important applications we can uh, dream up at the time. All around the world, people are uh, realizing the value of basic research for their own um, economic and technological um, advances. Since winning the Nobel Prize last year, other things have changed for Young, too. Are you, uh, are you getting more sleep now than you did then? Uh, no, I'm getting a lot less sleep. Uh, it's, you know, the, uh, it's been a busy, busy year, um, it, but it's been a lot of fun. You do, do hear from a lot of old friends, and a lot of them are in different places around the world, so we've been seeing a lot more uh, plane time, uh, air time, and, uh, and so i got to watch my jet lag. i got to be careful about that. Just one final note. Michael Young's Nobel Prize was actually the second involving fruit flies and the University of Texas at Austin. In 1946, Herman Mueller won a Nobel Prize for his discovery that x-rays can cause mutations in an animal's genome. That discovery allowed future researchers to create genetic mutants, such as those described in that paper on circadian clocks that first attracted the attention of Michael Young. It all goes back to the humble fruit fly. Point of Discovery is a production of the University of Texas at Austin's College of Natural Sciences. We're on the web at pointofdiscovery.org. Our senior producer is Christine Sinatra. I'm your host and producer, Mark Earhart. Thanks for listening.